welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature John Stott, born in 1921. He was well known throughout the world for his writings and godly influence in the global church. He founded Langham Partnership in response to the growing needs he heard from churches and pastors in the majority world. Stott passed away July 27th in 2011. Today, John Stott presents a study on Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Love came down at Christmas. to me that there is something extremely attractive about their shepherds. I wonder if you agree with me. Apart from the baby Jesus himself, who of course was the very center of the Christmas story, flanked on one side by Joseph and on the other by Mary, it is surely the shepherds who are the most popular characters in the Christmas story. They've always featured prominently in every children's and adult's nativity play. I'm so glad that God did not choose to announce the birth of Jesus to anybody else. I'm so glad that he didn't choose to announce the birth of Jesus to the Roman Emperor Augustus who is mentioned in verse 1 of Luke chapter 2 as part of the background furniture to the story. But I doubt if Augustus Caesar ever heard of Jesus. It wasn't to him in all the pomp of his magnificence in the palace in Rome. It wasn't to him that God announced the coming of Jesus. Nor was it to Quirinius, who is mentioned in verse 2, the governor or procurator of Syria at that time. Nor was it to King Herod the Great, pompous fool that he was. Oh, to be sure, he came to hear about the birth later and did his best to demolish and destroy Jesus. But it wasn't to him that the birth of the Savior was announced. It wasn't to the high priest or any of the priests in the hierarchy of the institutional church, as you might call it, in the temple in Jerusalem. And it wasn't to the mayor of Bethlehem, if there was one in those days. It wasn't even to those mysterious magi, to be sure. Again, they heard later, but they came later. It wasn't to them that the announcement was made. No, God chose to announce the most stupendous news that the world has ever heard to simple shepherds, to ordinary blokes like us. Isn't that marvelous? Not to any bigwig, not to any celebrity who's now to be seen in wax in Madame Tussauds, that's where most of us mingle with the mighty, only in wax. But it wasn't to any of them that God announced the stupendous news of the coming of the Savior of the world. It was to those ordinary people. They were going about their everyday business, the shepherds. They were making sure that the sheep had adequate pasture. 
At night time in particular, they had to be on the alert because wolves were around and they were the chief enemy of sheep. And their shepherds had no expectation whatever that anything out of the ordinary was going to happen that night. They weren't expecting anything. They were taken totally by surprise. In fact, at first, when the vision of the angels and of the glory of the Lord around them appeared, they were filled with terror and not with joy. Not yet with joy. Then you've thought of this, haven't you? When the angels had gone, as quickly and unexpectedly as they had come, and when the first Christmas carol ever sung by angels was over, and the hills round Bethlehem were swathed in silence and in darkness again, the shepherds must surely have wondered if it had all been a hallucination. I wonder very much if somebody here has had a rather similar experience. It's another reason, in my view, why we have a kind of fellow feeling with their shepherds. We may not claim to have seen the glory of the Lord. We may not have claimed to have seen an angel. I've never seen an angel, not knowingly anyway. There are plenty of angelic folk around. We may not have claimed to see exactly what they saw, but I guess if we had time to share notes tonight, there would be many of us who could say we've had an experience of the transcendent. It's very, very interesting to me that New Agers, members of the whole worldwide New Age movement, are seeking what they call the transcendent. Seeking an experience of a reality with a capital R that is above and beyond the material world. And there are many people who have had a sense of the transcendent reality. And then, although it was real enough at the time, the vision faded, the darkness and the silence descended upon our lives again, and we wonder if, after all, it was only a dream. So here is the question I want to ask and try to answer tonight. What did the shepherds do? That is, after the angels had gone back to heaven, after the glory of the Lord had disappeared, after the first Christmas carol had uh, finished, after the darkness and the silence had descended on the fields again, after everything had become normal, once more. What did they do? What happened? What should we do? That's the question. Well, I want to answer it from the text. If you'd like, by the way, to follow, uh, I've been asked to base what I say on Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. That's why we had the whole passage read just now. It's a story, if you like, of how love came down at Christmas but I want to think more about how the shepherds responded to the love that came down from heaven at Christmas. And the first text I'd like to ask you to look at in Luke 2 is verse 15. This is the first thing we're told. The shepherds went to Bethlehem 
to see for themselves. Verse 15, when the angels had left them and gone back to heaven, and normality, that is, had been restored to their lives, the shepherds said to one another, let's go see. I love that. They weren't content with hearsay. They wanted to go and find out for themselves if it was true and what it all meant. So they neither laughed off their experience as a hallucination, nor accepted it without critical investigation. They determined to find out for themselves if it was true. So, verse 16, they hurried off. Yeah, they were in a hurry to find out about it. And they found exactly what they'd been told they would find, They found what they were looking for. There were Joseph and Mary. And there was the baby lying in a manger. Dear friends, I really wish and I have been praying and I do pray that many of us tonight, what are there, a thousand or so here tonight, maybe many more downstairs, I really pray that we can learn from their shepherds. I wonder if we could learn that the right response to the Christmas story is neither credulity nor incredulity. Neither of those extremes is right. The right response is a critical, open-minded, unprejudiced inquiry as to whether these things might be true. So they hurried off to find out. I like that. I wish there were among us more of this let's go and see mentality. I don't find many people like that today. They've made up their minds without having any adequate evidence upon which to base their conclusion. But I wish there were more let's go and see spirit in the world and in the church today. I wish there were more willingness to move away from agnosticism into investigation. I wish there were more determination not to depend on hearsay, not to reply on second-hand rumors, but to find out for ourselves. As indeed in our own scientific world, we should long ago have been schooled to do by the empirical method. Now, of course, we can't go to Bethlehem as the shepherds went, or at least we could go, but it wouldn't help us very much. Oh, we'd find there are fields outside Bethlehem. We'd get the atmosphere all right. But we wouldn't find the person we were seeking there. So where shall we look for him, this Jesus? He isn't in a manger cradle tonight. Where is he? Well, you know, Martin Luther the great German theologian reformer at the beginning of the 16th century, do you know what he called scripture? He said, scripture is the cradle of the Christ. What a beautiful phrase. The Bible is a kind of manger in which the baby Jesus is lying. If you want to find Jesus, we must read the Bible because I think I can say without fear of contradiction that the major, if not the only purpose, the overriding purpose of the Bible is to point people to Jesus Christ. 
There was a book written many years ago called Christ in All the Scriptures. And the Bible, Old and New Testaments alike, and especially, of course, in the New, in the Gospels, and in the Acts, and in the Epistles, and in the book of Revelation, they're all pointing to Christ. The old authors used to say that just as in England, wherever you are, on any country lane, or farm track, or street, or road, linking on to others will ultimately lead you to London. So, wherever you are in the Bible, any verse, almost any word, any paragraph, any book linking with others will ultimately lead you to Christ. Christ is the center of the biblical revelation. The Bible is God's book about Christ. So, if we really want to find Jesus, we've got to read that dusty old book. We've got to get it down from our shelves. How many of us are getting a little bit red in the face? Because we haven't looked at that book for months, if not years. No wonder we find it difficult to find Jesus. I'm often distressed myself by the number of educated, I'm tempted to say otherwise educated, and intelligent people who have condemned Christianity unheard. They haven't read the New Testament since they were kids at school. They've never investigated the credentials of Christianity. They've never read the foundation documents, the Gospels and the Epistles, and they've rejected it unheard. That's not honest. There are many people who are guilty of that very dishonesty. Maybe somebody will be challenged tonight to get that book down and read especially the Gospels that tells the story of Jesus. There is plenty of evidence on which to base a rational conviction about the truth of Jesus Christ. There is, for example, the stupendous claims that Jesus made. Are we even familiar with this? Here was a yokel, a simple peasant from a carpenter shop in Nazareth on the outskirts of the Roman Empire that nobody had ever heard of. And he said he had the authority to forgive sins. He went round forgiving people's sins. The bystander said, who is this? Who can forgive sins but God only? He said, exactly, who can? Jesus went on to claim that he was going to be the central figure of the judgment day. That on judgment day he would come back and sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations would be gathered before him and he would separate them from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats calling some to heaven and sending others to hell. He must be mad. If we claimed, if somebody here in the pulpit of all souls were to claim, you'd better listen to my sermon tonight, because I'm going to come back at the end of the world, and I hold your eternal destiny in my hand. I would, or whoever it was, would not long escape the attentions of the police or the psychiatrist. (laughs) And that is what Jesus said. I mustn't allow myself to be distracted in this way, but... 
There are these stupendous claims. Then there's the beauty of his moral character. He never sinned. It was a life full of love and full of humility and full of gentleness that has been the envy and admiration of the world. And then think of the combination of the claims and the character, the self-centered claims and the unself-centered character, the egocentricity of the claim and the humility of the character. It's unique. There is nothing like it in the history of the world. There's plenty of evidence. There's plenty of evidence for circumstantial, historical evidence of the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. No, but we don't investigate these things. We make up our minds before we've investigated the evidence. It's that that isn't fair. The shepherds didn't do that. The shepherds said, let's go see. Let's find out. One other thing before I move on. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, which has so much treasure in it, seek and you will find. And everybody who seeks, finds. I'm persuaded there are people here tonight who've not found Jesus Christ. And I want to ask you, is the reason you haven't found him that you've never sought him? No wonder you haven't found It's those who seek who find. And if we seek him diligently with all our heart, then he promises that we shall find him. Millions have found that to be true. And I hope there may be somebody who will take up this challenge tonight. At the end, by the way, I've got a number of uh, copies of St. Luke's Gospel, a rather nice little one called uh, Luke Makes Sense of Life. It's just the Gospel of Luke, and, uh, which begins with the Christmas story. And we from All Souls want to give you a Christmas present. We want to give you a copy of this little book, the Gospel of Luke, on one simple condition. You'll read it. And not only that you will read it, but you'll read it with an open, unprejudiced mind. Maybe praying. You know, at the, you've got this little yellow... Uh, sheet, haven't you, in here? And on the back, did you see a prayer at Christmas time? You might like to pray that every day before you read this. Luke has 24 chapters. It'll probably take you a month or so. You couldn't make a better New Year resolution than this. Take a copy on condition you intend to read it as a seeker in the spirit of those shepherds. Let's go seek. Mind you, I better warn you It's a dangerous thing to do. You might find. And then your life would be revolutionized. Well, I've gone on too long on that because I've got one or two other things to say, if you can bear it. The first is those shepherds went to Bethlehem to find out. They went to see. I love that. Secondly, when they'd found, they spread the word. The next verse I'd like you to look at is verse 17. When they had seen him, that's Jesus, the baby. When they had seen him, they spread the word about what they'd seen and what they'd heard about him. So they couldn't keep the good news to themselves. 
They wanted other people to know. They wanted their family and their friends to know and their neighbors and the whole world as well. I think we need to notice how natural their witness was. The shepherds spread the word of what they'd seen and heard because what they'd seen and heard was such a joyful thing that they wanted to spread it. Just as the Apostle Peter said in the early chapters of the Acts when the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, forbade them to teach anymore in the name of Jesus. You know what Peter said? We cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. When we've seen and heard Jesus Christ and come to know him in a personal way for ourselves, then you can't stop us from talking. It isn't a question of screwing yourself up in order to turn the conversation into a religious direction. No, no, it's simply that you're bubbling up spontaneously with what you found in Jesus Christ and you want to share him out of the overflow of your hearts. So first they went to see, and second they went to tell. There's another little thing about their witness I'd like to mention, and that is it received different reactions. Some people, we read in verse 18, were amazed at what the shepherds told them. And when we share the gospel today, sometimes people are amazed. They say, why have we never heard this good news before? But not everybody was amazed like that. Verse 19 describes a different reaction from Mary, the Virgin Mary, the mother of the baby. We read of her, she treasured up all these things and she pondered them in her heart. She came to believe in due course. We know that as this story unfolds. But in the beginning for her, it was a slower process. What you might, if you like, call her conversion. Her coming to believe in her son was a slow process. She needed time. She needed time to think, time to ask questions, time to get answers to her questions, time to ponder. And there are plenty of people like that in the world today. They need time. And we have no intention of pressing, pressurizing them into a premature decision. That's the reason for what we call, again, it's on this sheet, called Christianity Explained. An informal discussion group that meets on Monday evenings and uh, no holds a bird, it's entirely open, it's the people who are seeking, have got honest questions that they want to ask honestly and they hope will be answered honestly. Christianity Explained. I hope many of you will decide to join Christianity Explained. Maybe when the rush of Christmas is over. So far then the shepherds went to see for themselves and having found they spread the word. And of course if all Christian people had done that the world would long, long, long ago have been evangelized. And it's so sad that there are so many of us in the church who seem to be so hesitant, so tongue-tied when we ought spontaneously to share with others the good news. Now thirdly, and then I'll close. Verse 20. They returned. The shepherd said, let's go see. They found, they spread the word, and then they returned. That is, of course, to the fields near Bethlehem. And as they returned, they were glorifying and praising God 
for everything that they'd seen and heard. In other words, they worshipped as well as witnessed. Worship and witness had entered into their lives. I like those words, they returned. They didn't spend the rest of their lives in the stable. They didn't loiter round the cradle or manger. They returned back to their flocks, back in due course to wife and family and home. But although they went back to the same old job in the same old home, they were different. So they went back to the old job in a new spirit. They went back to the old home in a new spirit. They had been changed by meeting Jesus. The spirit of wonder, the spirit of worship had entered into their hearts. They'd heard the angelic choir praising God, so they wanted to praise God themselves. We got that lesson? We too have to return back to the same old spouse, back to the same old kids, back to the same old home and the same old sink and the same old cooker and the same old job but not in the same old way. The discovery of Jesus can change our lives. It is a transforming experience. It adds a new dimension to the old lifestyle. As Billy Graham throughout his ministry has often said, Christ will put a new spring in your step and a light in your eye and a smile on your face. And it's true. We go back to the same old context in a brand new way. So let me recapitulate and conclude. Do you understand now a little bit more why I find those shepherds so attractive? For myself, I'm very grateful to those shepherds. I've learned a lot from them. I admire the sequence of events in which they were caught up. That first they went to see for themselves, then they went to tell, spread the word, and then they glorified and praised God. And what is the common denominator of those three things? It has to do with their eyes. First they said, let's go see. We've heard, let's go see. And then when they got there, they saw Jesus. And as a result of what they saw, they spread the word. They couldn't have spread the word if they hadn't seen for themselves. And then they glorified and praised God for all that they had seen and heard. Now, of course, we can't see Jesus in the same way today. We can't see him with our physical and literal eyes. But you know, the Bible has a great deal to say about spiritual eyesight. It has a great deal to say about the need to have our eyes opened to see truths to which otherwise we would be blind. Of course, we may not have had this experience yet, but it's available for us. The eyes of our hearts can be enlightened, as the Bible says again and again. And this is the essence of being a Christian. I hope everybody here knows that. Being a Christian isn't just believing certain things in the creed, important as that is in its place. Being a Christian isn't just coming to church. You can come to church and not be a Christian. 
It's important, of course, to belong to the community, but you can come to church and not be a Christian. It isn't just a question of being baptized or even reading the Bible and praying and going through these kind of ceremonies. What is being a Christian? When you boil it down to its essential ingredient, it's knowing Christ. It's seeing Christ. It's discovering Christ. It's coming to know him in a personal way. So that you can pray, for example, a little, it's not very good poetry, but I learned it years ago. How does it begin? Does your mind ever go blank like that? (laughs) Something like this. Lord, make yourself to me a living, bright reality. More present to faith's vision, keen, than any outward object seen, more dear, more intimately nigh, than e'en the sweetest earthly tie. That's it. So I come back to seek and you will find. That's what Jesus said. Why don't you put him to the test? Get this gospel on condition that you will read it. He said, seek and you will find. We have to fulfill the condition, seeking. He will fulfill the promise that we may find. Let's pray. We may want to do a little business with God in silence for a moment. We may need to want to promise to read the Gospel of Luke as a seeker. Whatever the resolution we need to make, let's make it. We desire to thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for the example of those simple shepherds many years ago. Thank you that they were determined to find out for themselves, and after they had done so, they engaged in both witness and worship. We pray that we may follow them, We ask that there may be many here who will decide to read that gospel with an open, unprejudiced mind. And we ask you, Lord Jesus, to fulfill your promise. Seek and you will find, for everyone who seeks, finds. We ask it for the glory of your great name. Amen. You've been listening to John Stott. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.